Halo, halo, Sacred Icon listeners. We used to do ads for other people, but I decided, why don't we do one for ourselves? Whether you're here listening to us for the first time or you've heard every episode, I'd like to briefly tell you what we're about and how you can support us. We have been doing this podcast since 2019, and with that has come lots of changes. We started as a primarily Halo-only show, but have evolved, combat evolved, over the years to talk about a wide variety of things in the realm of nerd culture. As you can imagine, we've made numerous changes to our platforms, usernames, and emails over the years, so now is the time for me to set things right and give the Covenant back their bomb. You can join our Discord by clicking the link included on our podcast feed. You can also send us an email or a voice message at sacrediconpodcast at gmail.com. We have a YouTube channel at youtube.com slash sacredicon, and we no longer use Twitter or X or whatever else the kids are calling it these days. So if you see someone who looks like us there, just know it's not us. Lastly, you can support us on patreon.com slash sacredicon and receive a bevy of bonus content. We're so glad you chose us to be the voice in your ear on this particular day and hope you enjoy the episode ahead. Halo, halo, everybody, and welcome back to another round of the Haruspis episodes here at the Sacred Icon Podcast. We are back with episode 60, ready to resume, take us back into this new little era. We're going to talk about the Forerunner uh, trilogy, almost a saga, I guess that applies to, and all the uh, lore that kind of was coming out preceding Halo 4's release. Brian is going to take us through this one. So without further ado, I'm Jovial Joshua Hargist. Join with me is the aforementioned Brian's Bane, not Brian Ivy, not Brian Freeze, Brian's Bane himself, and, and back again is the lovely and wonderful Alex Haruspis. Alex, welcome back. Hello there. One day I'll think of a new intro. To, no, to I say, love it. General Kenobi. Josh, I just want you to do that every time. Um, yeah, I'll kind of just give a quick time. You're right. Let's kind of give a quick uh, direction summarization and just kind of let Alex go here because this is like literally right in his territory. I mean, there's a parking spot VIP for uh, <laughs> Forerunner book talk. Um, but uh, yeah, let's let's we're going to start with the entire let's do the entire Forerunner trilogy first and we'll keep the Kilo 5 stuff for the end so that if we have to cut anything short, it's that not only because <laughs> we care more about the Forerunner stuff, but also as Alex will explain further in time here, uh, it's not his particular favorite uh, lore of the series is, is the Kilo 5 stuff. But um, So for the 400 trilogy, we have uh, Cryptum, Primordium, and then Silentium, which Silentium is the only one that came out after Halo 4. Um, so you would have you could have read the first two before playing Halo 4, but you, a few months later, you got Silentium. And the this uh, trilogy takes place 100,000 years before the events of Halo. And uh, kind of gives us a lot of answers and a lot of background to things that we had wondered for the entirety of the yes, franchise's yeah. life. And it was just so uh, invigorating to get all this. And it's just, I mean, if you're a Halo fan, like a newer, uh, either a newer Halo fan, or maybe you've been a long time Halo fan, but you've really just kind of only played the games. Um, reading just one of these books is going to make you go like, your mind just going to go like, holy, whoa, whoa, <laughs> like this is, Picture you know, some books they are like, some books they are like, if you read 300 pages on page 220, you're going to get this big reveal, and it makes it worth it. But the 400 Trilogy is just like, reveal, 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 <laughs> blow your mind constantly. So um, in my, I think my, well, I was going to say, I think my favorite is probably Silentium, but I feel like Cryptum is the most um, 
it just feels like the easiest kind of straightforward story kind of yeah it's kind of it's almost young adult in a way with the mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. the protagonist and everything that you've got with born stella uh and i feel like that's kind of like not recognized enough is that uh cryptum is a very kind of adventure -y sort of pirates of the caribbean style story yeah i could definitely see that yeah that's what makes it to me that it's very accessible and and very uh easy to get into which is kind of and i don't know if you'll agree with me alex but that's kind of where it makes it hard for those people that carry into primordium because it's mm. definitely much different <laughs> yes. uh, but the silentium <laughs> kind of wraps it kind of brings it all back around so but uh alex i'll just let you kind of if you want to just kind of start with uh cryptum and kind of what the basis of that story is and then kind of plot beats or things you found interesting we kind of just go all over the place so with the four saga i think the first thing to mention is that um there's a kind of a frame narrative around these so while the bulk of these stories is being told you know about events that are happening a hundred thousand years ago they are actually being told in the present the present day of the halo universe each one has some kind of device where oni is learning more about what's been going on in you know the history of the universe so with halo cryptum it's something in uh, the Onyx shield world called the Bornstellar relation that they found. Uh, in Primordium, it's uh, the testimony of Guilty Spark, who has been recovered uh, from the wreckage at the Ark uh, and of Installation 08, uh, who's giving, you know, who's telling the uh, only ship of the UNSC Rubicon uh, what has been going on with the Didact and everything in the past. And then Halo Silentium is a series of strings pulled from uh, a monitor shell and a catalog unit, which was a uh, sort of foreign device slash person we'll learn more about later on. Um, that's been pulled and uh, only is studying sort of, you know, the fall of the forerunners. So in just at a base level, 343 loves their kind of frame narratives where what's happened in the past is relevant to the present and determines what's going to happen in the future. That's all over their storytelling. And that's one of my favorite aspects, right? Just right out of the gate is that what you're learning about is relevant to what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. oh, I definitely like the idea like of that. Like I actually didn't know all that stuff in that. Uh, that's pretty damn cool. It's, I mean, this is like literally like, Alex euphoric time to <laughs> yes, be honest. very much so. they're firing on all cylinders <laughs> I mean I know I'm the guy who knows the least about this stuff but that for me at least that almost reminds me of like just the halo 2 anniversary terminals of where you're getting the story of mm -hmm. this stuff you know about how uh, guilty spark got recovered and all this kind of like stuff what happened to him and how Sessa gets kind of you know gets a story told and stuff like that and that story actually makes sense and applies to you know what we're getting even though Story-wise, I mean, you have the Forerunner stuff, which is way, way, way back, but they find a way to kind of keep it relevant and, and Absolutely. Uh, topical. So, well, it, it helps. It helps that in the you know in the Halo games obviously are, are riddled with Forerunner stuff from the very beginning. So it's not. Whereas some franchises, like if you were going to try to tell, maybe this is a bad example. It's just the first thing that came to mind. But like if you're going, if you get to like Gears of War four and you're trying to tell the events of what happened a hundred thousand years ago in hmm. uh, Gears, you know, the, it's not really, it hasn't really, there hasn't been sprinklings along throughout the franchise to really make it feel a little pendulum war moment was awesome though. Yeah. What's that? It, Gears yeah. really feels like it's sort of the last sort of hundred years or so that you're really kind of exploring uh, overall. 
Yeah, exactly. Whereas Halo, you know, even from the original game, you know, there's this question of who are the forerunners and these installations they've built and this technology. Mm. Um, so having that story be told, you know, both through these novels and then experienced through Halo 4, it just felt like a matter of time, which I think makes it work. Absolutely. So. I mean, you know, when you look at the um, Halo games stories, you know, when, when the forerunners are sort of like brought into it, by the time you get to Halo 3 and then Reach, you kind of feel like it's telling the same story of you're getting this little peek into some kind of device or, or installation, and they never really go very far with it. And then the plot structure is just you blow it up by the end and move on. And I think that, you know, there was what that revealed to me was that there was really a sort of case of diminishing returns for not delving into the forerunners and sort of using them as a as a way to open up a lot of doors for the future and so when you know it was announced that oh greg bear we got greg bear to to write a trilogy of halo books about the forerunners and i was like this is everything that i've ever wanted yeah this pick series a, pick your guys's brains just real quick about that uh what was it like for you guys when this announcement comes out and they say this i mean where are you guys at mentally uh, you know, Go ahead, Alex. Very much as I said, this is this is what I've been waiting for ever since I stepped out of that that bloody escape pod on Installation Zero Four, and I thought, you know, what is this place? Who were the who were the people who who made this? What was their kind of you know what was their daily life like? What uh, you know even before the flood, uh, and you know you you can infer your own answers, but I was really interested to actually learn what those answers were, and uh, I was thrilled absolutely thrilled that this was sort of 343's first foot forward uh, in in the story that they were telling do you yeah, w- go ahead Brian. i'm oh, sorry well i was just saying, i was in- i was incredibly excited but i think it was just like it's one of those things where like when you're waiting for something to come out that's so different or like because i'm thinking i'm already i'm already trying to imagine hey our next halo game is going to be made by someone that it's not bungie mm. and it's going to also it's going to go into the forerunner stuff that we've always kind of had in the background you get to this point where you're just you you can't imagine playing it you know it's like josh when you first heard that disney was going to make a star wars film you're like what and, and it's going to have original cast members you're like i can't like i i can picture it but i also can't like yeah. what is that going to be like when i mm-hmm. experience it you know mm-hmm. And you almost kind of can't, it's almost, it's kind of like even like Infinite right now. Like right now, you know, Infinite's been this thing we've talked about for so long, Halo Infinite. And, and all the Star Wars seen, shows that have just been announced, Hayden and Ewan McGregor coming oh, back. Yeah, yeah, it's like, man. yeah, it's yeah, like, dude. it's like, how do you, it's like, you can picture it, but at the same time, you're like, you're kind of envisioning yourself watching that Obi-Wan series or playing Halo Infinite. And you're like, at some point, I'm going to actually be experiencing that. And it's like, I know that's going to happen. But I just can't fathom it. And of course, as years pass by, you know, now I look back at Halo 4 and like, oh, yeah, of course Halo 4 is a thing. You know, that doesn't shock me. Or Force Awakens, Mm. of course, that's a thing. But while you're waiting, you're just like, I can't, I can't imagine. And that's kind of how I felt with this 400 stuff. Mm. Reminds me how every time I'm like, before something I'm interested in is about to come out, I'm like, hope I live to see it. Hope I don't die. And then it comes out. (laughs) And then there's like something else, you know, and then I'm like, hope I live to see it. I I remember Halo 5. I'm like, boy, I hope I live and don't die because this year we're getting Halo 5. We're getting Force Awakens. And then now I'm like, hope I live 
live to see Halo Infinite. You were saying that. You literally said that we were playing video games in the basement and <laughs> on the way to MCC. You're like, I just hope I live long enough to play MCC. Yeah. And then MCC came out. He couldn't get in a multiplayer match. And he's like, I should have died. No, he didn't say I made that up. I, I made that up. He didn't say it. But, but no, back to the Forerunner stuff. Like, in a way, it almost reminds me of what Star Wars is. Uh just about to do with the High Republic era. I mean, we're finally, I mean, it's it's different, obviously. Not but it's far time, back, like, but yeah. Right, but I mean, you're still kind of now entering this new era of sort of getting getting the story told. And it's not in the same nuance because you don't, it's not like, it's not like you could watch Star Wars. I mean, Halo's credit, it's not like in the, the films that we know of, there's all these High Republic references and stuff. Whereas in Halo, you have all this stuff. You have the foundation of this story to be told. Yeah. You know, and then the books are like, now we're going to tell that story. So, you know, I think here's a good this would be a good time to for for people who have only kind of like seen stuff on forums and, and seen it through text. I think this would be a good time to kind of put something to rest for good for those listening to uh, to, to a podcast. Um, and I'm kind of going to say it first. And if I kind of didn't tackle every detail properly, maybe Alex can smooth that out. But like there's a reoccurring argument or conversation in the Halo fandom that it never ends and it'll end up cropping up again, you know, just when you think it's done is, you know, Bungie uh, intended for the forerunners to just be humans. And then three, four, three came along and they messed everything up by retroactively retconning everything that, that, that Bungie did. And the truth of the matter, and this is where I'll let Alex take it and then you can correct me if I left some details out is uh, original at some point in Bungie's tenure, they, they had intended for, um, humans to be forerunners. And then at another point, they had intended for them to be a separate species. And it wasn't ever a solidified thing. Both were kind of up in the air mm-hmm. until 343 took over and decided to make that decision and go go with it. Um, are you on the same page, Alex? Do you want to add to that at all? Yeah, totally. You know, people seem to have this notion that you know, it's all this immaculately planned reveals and everything. And yet, uh, you speak to Paul Russell on Twitter, who was, you know, he, he's the guy, the godfather of Halo is one of his nicknames because uh, he named the series. He was involved in a lot of the early story stuff. And he said, no, nah, we were just making up as we went along. <laughs> we were flying by the seat <laughs> by the planets. You know, the flood was a covenant bioweapon? Yeah, we thought at one point the flood was going to be a covenant bioweapon. And, you know, it, it was just, it evolves as and when it needs to. And that can happen on a dime. But, you know, you know, when you experience it in the game, you know, you like to think that, oh, they planned this all out. It's not true. <laughs> it's, just, no. it's very much not true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you, because I, I just... It's fair if you you know if you say you preferred the original idea for foreigners if you preferred that I mean, that's a completely fair statement but just to, to say that it was something that Bungie had immaculately planned and built up to structurally and then three four three came in and said nope giant retcon it's just not true at all I mean it even it's even fact that uh, you know Halo three is the point where it was really solidified that they had introduced another concept for the forerunners that they weren't humans. Yeah, I mean um in the Bestiarum, which is the little booklet you get in the Halo three uh, sort of special edition, um that's where they introduced the precursors, you know, as a tier zero race that could accelerate evolution and everything. It's just a little name drop in there. But uh you know then we see the uh the Iris ARG for Halo three and the terminals, which were written by Frank O'Connor, none other, uh, as well as uh, Damien Isler and uh, Robbed McLeese, if I'm not mistaken. It was a small team that worked on those, uh, did an amazing job. Um, 
and that's really the sort of divergence point where a lot of the kind of answers aren't quite bill uh you know what you were expecting and you know i've seen some people say like oh you know frank went rogue and he just told his own stories <laughs> for, for for the biggest game release like ever at the time he was just able to to go up and say ah screw everybody else i'm telling my own story <laughs> <laughs> it's obviously not true you know it's it was such a marketing front on microsoft's side and bungie's side that obviously there was a massive collaboration involved in uh, in delivering this story so yeah not all the parts align uh, and that speaks to just sort of how things were at the time we know that halo 3 had a very sort of chaotic development and that its script was written by uh you know writing committees that they that sort of hired and sort of edited upon by uh by various people at the studio marty o'donnell and the like um so it's, it wasn't this sort of perfect crystallized thing that, that uh, was so easily answered. And even, you know, the the obvious point to go to is Guilty Spark saying in Halo 3, you know, you are Forerunner. But even in, even in his quote there, you know, where he says, you are the child of my makers, inheritor of all, you, all they left behind, is there's a lot of room, a lot of wiggle room for interpretation, you know, in that. In, in saying you are the child of my makers, you know, you, you're still creating a separation between them, and so you know you're not say he's not saying you are my makers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, and would you say is it a fair conclusion for me to draw? I feel like um, you know we're talking about how you know Bungie kind of had touched on both ideas for the forerunners and, and hadn't made a commitment, and that's where three four three committed. Um, when Joe Staten released Contact Harvest, his kind of points more to them being the same race. Do you agree with that or do you see it differently? Yeah, you know, at the same time, um, there's this mendicant bias in the, the key ship where the prophets talk to, well, not they're not prophets yet, but um, where they speak to him. Um, and he says, you know, my makers are my masters. But this, this rampant fragment that's been, uh, you know, kind of, stuck on this ship for a hundred thousand years and uh, it's just kind of done with everything um you know again it's just like these things don't always align and yeah the, well, the yeah, way three four three kind of presents it is like you know well it's it's about kind of who you believe and uh you know this uh, unreliable narrator which is inherent in a lot of their stories well, you guys tell me if you feel differently but i, I mean i i think it's just one of those things of like you know people want so badly to believe this stuff happens or like has happened you know it's like when i when i think about how i feel towards like tolkien's work in middle earth and even though i know it's not real when i read it and even when i watch like fellowship of the ring and it has that intro with kate blanchett doing the narration i'm like it, it just i'm so immersed in it that i can almost convince myself just for better enjoyment that like this is a thing that happened and it's an unwritten piece of history that's mm-hmm. now being told and and I, I get with things like Star Wars, you know, and, and, and things like, you know, Halo and everything that like you very much want to have everything feel so connected and so accurate with no missteps because you want to feel like you want to buy into the believability of this being an actual thing, even though it's, you know, it's a work of fiction and all that stuff. But, you know, at the same time, it's like there's a level of sort of caring too much where that starts to become it starts to seep in because for me, it's like. With the Forerunner stuff, for example, I'm like, I just think it's cool we even got that story to be told, <laughs> finally, you know, after all these years. I mean, do you guys agree, more or less? Yeah. Very much so, yeah. yeah. I think the question that I'd be moved to ask those people is like, okay, what do you envision the story really being if it is just as simple as 
Oh yeah, with the forerunners. It's like okay, <laughs> what what doors does that really open? Like what's next? Because yeah. it's a pretty closed loop there. Whereas, you know, you look at the the way that they frame the story instead, which is the librarian specifically had uh, had this affinity for humanity, which uh, you know came about from her own sort of her own vanity, her own sort of. Uh, you know the situation around her children with the didact and everything and you you get into these really complex kind of character motivations it opens up so many more doors uh, around kind of like the society and history of this species and their relationship with humans and and everything it's like there's enough there to satisfy the next hundred years of halo storytelling whereas if you just roll with oh yeah humans are the forerunners moving on (laughs) and i think (laughs) you don't go anywhere with that right I think that kind of brings us back around to like you know the, the feelings of excitement when when Krypton was was being announced because, um, like Alex has already touched on, you know Bungie, and it, not, in a sense they're not even doing it, really doing anything wrong. But when they made Halo Combat Evolved, it was just the next game they were making. You know that's all it was to them. They weren't they didn't set out to make the next the Star Wars of gaming or the next yeah. huge multi set universe. Um, and they just, you know, uh, the stars aligned and it turned out being a great game on the Xbox and, you know, it sold so well, they, it made sequel after sequel and, and as many people as fans and, and many people on the outside that had influence with Halo were trying to make it something bigger, trying to build it up to be something more massive and, and cross connecting with the books and media and all that Bungie was saying, you know, we're, we're here just to make games. We just want to make games. Hmm. You know, that's why when they made reach, they're like, we're going to make the game we want. We don't give a damn about your lore. <laughs> I mean, it's a little unfair. Cause I feel like the work they did with the, with Halsey's journal and then getting uh, an Island to come back, they, they did care somewhat, but at the same time kind of feels like not enough. Hmm. Um, so then, you know, with uh, 343 taking over, they're very much saying, you know, the fans have wanted this. We're fans of Halo. We want it too. We're going to make sure that this stuff matters. And of course, you know, it's up to you to decide whether they've done a great job with that or a bad one or somewhere in the middle. I mean, I, I feel like they did a great job, you know, somewhere up to five. And then kind of they've made some mistakes around the era of Halo 5. And now it kind of feels like they're back on a great path again with yeah, Shadows definitely. of Reach and, of course, Point of Light coming out in a few months, Ooh, which we. For that. Don't know much. Yeah, we don't know obviously everything about that yet because it's not out. But shout um, out to Pixel Flare for uh, for that incredible amazing cover. Art. Yeah, <laughs> dude, super good. Yeah, super, super yeah, good. it's it's a really impressive artwork. Um, but I was gonna say, uh, just kind of kind of touch on some stuff in Cryptum and then kind of move into Primordium because I think Primordium would be really cool for Alex to kind of uh, bring a talk about a lot of what happens in that because that <laughs> the ga- that uh, book is set where we're going to be in Halo Infinite. Yes, it very much is. Very interesting. Listen to people listening. Yeah. People listening who don't read, haven't read the book or don't care to, that's going to be, but are excited for infinite. It's probably gonna be really interesting. So, um, who, who's your favorite kind of character in Cryptum, uh, Alex? It would have to be the didact himself. I think in Cryptum, he is an absolute delight. He he's Jack Sparrow in, in Halo Cryptum, but, uh, (laughs) but with much more sort of tragedy going on. He's very, he's unexpectedly lighthearted in in that first book. You know, you, you get this sense of like the weight he's carried with like having lost his children and everything where he, he keeps them in his war sphinxes, uh, until they're destroyed, of course. Um, but when uh, <laughs> I just always laugh that when he's awakened from the cryptum and he learns, you know, that he's on Earth, 
that the librarian moved him from wherever it was before to to the home of humanity and he just grumps around on his island for about two weeks before he actually does anything (laughs) (laughs) at which point he's like okay i guess i'm gonna kidnap you and uh we'll we'll go off and have an adventure (laughs) yeah he's probably like if go figure she'd put me here yeah (laughs) of course she would yeah (laughs) my wife um but so like i I guess alex if you want to kind of give some broad strokes and take us to the ending of that book so we can go into primordium gosh yeah so uh, the story of cryptum is about a young forerunner called born stella born stella makes eternal lasting his name is he is uh he's been he's born into this family of builders so the forerunner society is split up into these different castes You've got uh, you've got the builders, the warrior servants, the life workers, engineers, and so on, uh, miners, and they've sent him to go to Mars to live with miners and learn sort of a bit more about what it means to be kind of forerunner because he's this rebellious, you know, young kid who's uh, who, who can't who doesn't really have a leash around him. He doesn't have he's not mindful of his like responsibilities and everything, and he's terribly bored of uh, of all that. So he goes. You know, I want to. I, I want to go out on adventure. You know, I want to find some treasure. He he dreams of finding the uh, the organon, which is this legendary precursor device which uh, can reactivate all precursor sort of artifacts across the galaxy. And uh, it's like this legendary thing where he's like, oh yeah, I'm, you know, I'm going to find the Holy Grail. That's that sort of approach. Uh, and he believes that uh, he's found it on Earth because one of the AIs that he's uh, sort of living with on mars uh tells him like oh yeah there's treasure on earth go you should go and uh, go find that uh and of course he's kind of duped into it because this ai is one of the librarians and uh, she has sort of maneuvered events so that he would go to earth and awaken her husband the didact uh from his cryptum where he's been imprisoned for the last sort of thousand ten thousand years following the end of the war between humanity and the forerunners ancient humanity um so that's a whole sort of like new kind of dimension to the story which they were building up towards and uh, you know we really sort of delve into that more in primordium than uh, than in cryptum but we sort of see those echoes of it and so he awakens the didact uh didact's very grumpy because he doesn't like humans very much <laughs> and he's been moved to to earth by by his wife the librarian Mm-hmm. But eventually, uh, the foreigners are sort of like trying to seek him out because there's some kind of thing that's going on. We don't know what this thing is. Of course, as a fan, you know, it's the war with the flood. The war with the flood is going pretty badly. I think at the time that this takes place, it's been going on some two 200 years or so. And we know that the war is about, you know, 300 years long. So the the timeline's a bit unclear because uh, we, we don't know exactly how long sort of the uh, events take place here but uh you know it's it's obviously that things are going badly and they're looking to their old leaders like the didact to be like okay you got a solution for us because we're not doing too well here (laughs) um and so didact sort of like you know he's awakened and he's sort of he's not really sure what's been going on so uh the the internet you know the domain has been a bit unreliable recently uh, because mendicant bias as we'll later learn has been uh sort of like suppressing foreigner access to it uh, and they rely on the domain as like the keystone of their society. So with that sort of on the fritz, he's like, "All right, let's uh, let's go on an adventure and find out what uh, what you've been screwing up lately." <laughs> so they go to uh, <laughs> they go to Charum Hakor, which is a planet that was 
essentially the reach of ancient humanity. You know, it was uh, it was humanity's capital world back then, which is where the final battle was fought. Uh, the, the the battle itself took like 50 years, and for three of those years, the Didact and his fleet was just non-stop bombarding the planet. Um, that's where everything sort of fell apart, so it's where they begin. Uh, and it's also where uh, a certain creature called the Timeless One, which purports to be the last precursor, uh, was found in a strange stasis capsule, and the Didact allegedly spoke with it. Uh, and so did ancient humanity, and its uh, its answers that it gave to the questions that humans asked it caused them to commit suicide, or rather drove them to commit suicide. So uh, there's a whole lot of sort of you know esoteric, dark, Lovecraftian, like mountains of madness stuff going yes. on there, which is like really just gorgeously you know, dripping with intrigue to to get into. And they go to they go to Chamhakor, but it's a smouldering ruin. Uh, this this strange world that was once covered in you know the immortal structures of the precursors, which is why humanity was able to hold out for so long there, is now this barren wasteland. Uh, and it turns out that uh, this planet had uh, the halo ring test fired on it, and as a result, the timeless one, which was captive uh, on on that planet, has escaped, and we're not really sure where it's gone. So the Didact's like, well. This is uh, this isn't ideal. This is this is pretty bad. They've probably fired a halo ring here. Cool, right? Well, we're gonna go see my old mentor, uh, and we're gonna just sort of catch up with him. You know, see this is pretty serious. Mm-hmm. So his mentor is called the Confirmer, and the Confirmer is um, this sort of ancient relic of a man who's uh, oh, yeah, this been guy. guarding the San Shayum, the Prophet's quarantine system. Because, of course, we learned that the, the San Shayum were allies of ancient humanity during the, the war. And that, true to their sort of slippery nature, they made a little deal with the Forerunners where it's like, yeah, we're going to sort of, you know, just we'll, we'll recede from this and let you guys handle the, the humans so that we can carry on kind of with some imposed sanctions, but not with the horrific sort of, you know, genetic regression that you're going to put on humanity. Um. And so the uh, some of the prophets there, uh, rather the Sanchayim, were around at the time of the of the war, or like descendants of you know people who know what sort of happened uh, at the tail end of those events. And the Didact's like, okay, right, we've got to speak to these people. So they show up there, and uh, during that time, Bornsteller uh, has something called a mutation from the Didact. So. In Forerunner society, you sort of biologically augment yourself to kind of progress and mature, similar to Spartan augmentations, you know, in that way. That's how they mold themselves into the roles in their society. There's just more organic, right? Yes. Uh, you know, theirs is sort of the Spartan formula taken to its kind of endpoint. You know, when Halsey says, you know, my Spartans are humanity's next step, our destiny as a species. This is kind of what she's referring to. This is like what she has in mind. It's very much what the librarian has in mind for humanity as well, is that these kind of augmentations will mold humanity into a society that kind of is very similar to the forerunners, which, as we learn across the books, is something we really don't want to happen because the thing about the forerunners is that they were, you know, terribly imperialistic sort of, you know, rulers, um, which we're seeing unfold, of course, with the, the mantle storyline in the, in the present series. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so the didact says, you know, I need you to access my memories, my patrimony, and I kind of need a bit of a backup plan in case I die. <laughs> so um, he sort of imparts his wisdom into into Bornster. It's like a personality kind of seed within his mind. Um, and as the sort of trilogy goes on, we see Bornsteller become more and more like the didact. He sort of evolves into this separate person. So cool. Because he transitions between rates. He was originally meant to be a builder and uh, his his family, he would normally have gotten his imprint from his father. That's sort of how their society works. But due to necessity, he gets it from the didact, who is one of the warrior servants. And the thing about the warrior servants is that they're a very low like rate in society. They're the ones who do all the dirty work that, uh, you know, the people at the top are like, oh, yeah, we don't uh, we don't condone their actions. They're just a hideous necessity, really. Uh, so they're the ones that they can like, point the finger at and say they're the ones who are, you know, they're not very nice. Right. Um, so they go to the San Shaim world and um, that's where everything. So, well, well, first of all, the didact starts necking all of his uh, all of his mentors vintages. He's been collecting all these uh, bits of alcohol from the San Shaim who've been kind of bribing him over the years. And as the didact learns more about what's been going on, just how badly they've been screwing up. He just starts uh, starts drinking, <laughs> as one naturally does <laughs> at the end of the world. Uh, and then uh, the master builder comes in with uh, with his halo ring, and he fires it on uh, the San Shayum world because all this time the San Shayum have been plotting their own uprising because um, their system has sort of it's fallen into disrepair. You know, they've just got this one antique guy sort of left uh, in this dishonorable kind of position of guarding them and that's all they have to contend with until the master builder shows up with his halo ring um so he captures the didact supposedly kills him although we don't find out in this book exactly what happens to him we'll find out more about that in silentium uh, and bornsteller was returned to his family where they're like oh boy you've been You've been doing some stuff, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> this isn't quite what we had in mind. Um, and eventually, uh, because of the firing of the ring, this is decreed to be a crime against the mantle uh, that the Master Builder has committed. So he is put on a tribunal at the Foreigner Capital World, which Bornsteller attends as a witness. And that's where, you know, at the seat of power, where all the Halo rings have been recalled to, to be decommissioned, uh, because of this, you know, use of power, that's when mendicant bias comes in. And mendicant bias locks down like everything at the capital, including Forerunner's armor, because they're so reliant on their technology. And uh, the AI prepares to fire five of the rings there, just completely wipe out the seat of government. Uh, the imprint of the didact in Bornsteller's head, you know, that's where it's kind of awakened, and uh, he sort of guides Bornsteller because. He and the Master Builder were the ones who created Mendicant Bias. Now, this isn't made textually explicit, but it seems that Mendicant Bias was created from um, the composed human essences uh, of ancient humanity. So there's kind of a mirror between Mendicant Bias and the Promethean Knights that the Didact would go on to create. They're sort of, you know, cut from the same cloth, essentially. Um, and you know they sort of escape in this uh, in this like escape pod, and they see just that the the sheer scale of this battle as the forerunner fleet jumps in, and they're trying to blow up all the halo rings there. 
and uh, eventually Bornsteller makes it to uh, a portal which takes him to the Greater Arc. Not the Arc we see in Halo 3, it's an older, um, an older Arc which created the original Halo rings. The original 12, that is to say, where um, instead of firing in like an omnidirectional kind of way, those rings fire in a sort of cone-shaped way. Like the, the specific targets is what they sort of like are used against. And uh, a lot of these Halo rings are destroyed, um, but one of them, Installation 07, uh, escaped this, and um, that's the ring which has been commandeered by Mendicant Bias and the Timeless One. And that's what leads us into the story of Halo Primordium. Oof. Okay, Alex, I'm just to, to, to speak for everyone listening and to be selfish and bold, can you just do what you just did, but for all of Primordium now? That, <laughs> I'm just hanging on every word. Fantastic to listen. I'm just hanging on every word, man. Like, this is, I mean, I, I've already, I already know this whole story, but just having you relay it like that is a just, treat. It's, it's yeah, the theater it's, of the mind, right. envisioning all this stuff. Indeed. Uh, yeah. First off, that so, was amazing. Pr- Primordium. <laughs> Primordium takes place on Zeta Halo, which is, for most of you listening, you should probably know that Halo Infinite and the entire game takes place on the same ring. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, amazing decision by 343, which uh, I'd really been hoping that if we were to go to another ring, that's the one it would be. Because some shit goes down on that ring. <laughs> now, I'm, guess, I'm guessing, I'm, I can't recall, I'm guessing I'm getting ahead of you, Alex, but so... The so Zeta Halo, the one we'll be on in Infinite, it originally was three times the size. It was. It was originally one of the yeah one of the original twelve rings, which was thirty thousand kilometers in diameter. But due to events that happened in Primordium, it is you know really cut down to uh, to you know three times the size of it. Yeah. So because uh, yeah, in that in that way, I skipped ahead of you because that that is revealed in Primordium then. Yes. Right. Yes. Okay. So for for those listening, when you play Halo Infinite, you know the the ring will be more resemblant of not that it matters in gameplay, I suppose, but more resemblant of the same size as the other rings. But it is one of the original rings that used to be three times the size, um, but is now smaller. So yeah, Alex, if you want to take us right into Pro- <laughs> from Primordium, man, I mean we're enjoying this as much as anyone I listening. Have, uh, hot so. cocoa. Uh, <laughs> yes. And blanky. Yeah. yeah. Gosh, Primordium, yeah. So this is the one that people have the most kind of trouble reading because it um, follows the story of Chakas. And Chakas is a character who's introduced in Halo Cryptum. He is the sidekick sort of of Bornsteller. Him and his uh, his friend Riser, uh, they hang out with Bornsteller on Earth. You know, they kind of guide him to the didact because they're all part of the librarian's plan as well. And... Um, when they get to the San Shayum ca- uh, capital system, that's where they're sort of like sectioned off from the story. The master builder uh, captures them as well, and he's got he he deposits them on installation zero seven, and that's where Primordium picks up. Is uh, Chakas is essentially falling down to the ring uh, in this like in this capsule, and he awakens to find that uh, there are other humans on this ring, a bunch of other humans from uh, you know unrecognizable populaces and they call themselves the Tujetsa or the people is uh, what that word translates to and the person he sort of befriends is a woman called Vinevra Uh, some interesting things around Vinevra um, because she is paralleled in a lot of ways to Cortana 
Um, she has these interesting like back tattoos, which seem to like in their design echo what Cortana has in Halo 4. Um, so there's some uh, every time that she's sort of brought up, there's a lot of like imagery of like blue things uh, and sort of like, puns around that, which kind of connect with her character. So I'm not sure what like the sort of explicit connection or if there is even one intended there, like what that is. But um her role in this story is like the guide, you know, similar to Cortana in the games, mm -hmm. uh, because she has a particularly tuned like uh, Gaius or however you want to say the word gas or Gaius. Um, for for me, I I usually say Gaius. Um, because uh, across the ring, we learn that there are these sort of life worker centers which kind of influence uh, the the imprint that the librarian left behind in these humans and sort of direct them to places. Mm -hmm. Now, what's been going on on this ring is very messed up because the Timeless One, uh, which we now know as the Primordial, uh, has been experimenting on humans. Um by bringing them into a place called the Palace of Pain. Mm. <laughs> Hopefully that we'll be going such there. such a cool name. Yeah. Ugh. It walks the line between being something Lovecraftian and something like Saturday morning cartoonish. <laughs> yeah. I'm well, taking this you is... to the Palace of Pain! <laughs> yeah. This is something that probably like more, either, I don't want to say casual fans, but, but fans who don't really delve into the books, they've probably started to hear this term, Palace of Pain, more since the reveal yeah. of Infinite. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of people will undoubtedly be hearing these words like, what is this place? You know, it's the same kind of like reverence that you say the silent cartographer or something like that, mm. which uh, which this is spoken of. And there humans are being experimented on with the flood. Uh, and what's strange about this is that some humans are totally fine. They're coming back to their uh, to their communities and no sign of flood infection. And the primordial is really trying to figure out what the hell is going on here. Um, even this ancient precursor doesn't have the answers. Uh, and the story that unfolds is told in almost entirely from uh, Chakas's perspective. But as I mentioned earlier, there is also the frame narrative of these stories. So what's happening is that in the present, uh, around 2553, uh, the UNSC has sent the UNSC Rubicon, a ship, back to the Ark to survey its wreckage and track down this weird distress signal they've been picking up there. And what they learned this distress, uh, this distress signal was, was none other than 343 Guilty Spark, the charred remains of, uh, you know, what what's left behind after we blow him up with that Spartan laser. And uh, they, they bring him on board and they start interrogating him about the didact. That's what they're really trying to find answers to. Now, there's some weird stuff going on here because originally... It seems like this story is being framed as taking place after Halo 4, but has since been kind of soft retconned to be before Halo 4. Because it's a bit weird as to why the UNSC would be asking about the didact at this point in time, in 2553, just straight after Halo 3, rather than after Halo 4, where he's brought into the setting. So, some weird stuff going on there. I don't really have any answers around that, but... Um, that's just how it is, unfortunately. Um, and so the Oni crew are sort of interrogating him and he's uh, he's giving them kind of what they want. He's telling them his story, 
because uh, his memory matrices are like failing and he's not sure how much how much time he's got uh, and so we learn about how humans have got the sort of essences of ancient humanity that were composed at the end of the war kind of like stuffed inside them so humans are like super like superstitious about you know these ghosts and these other voices that are kind of awakening in their heads and what it turns out to be is uh, all these ancient humans that from the end of the war that were gathered by the composer and because of the the sheer kind of menace of the of the council the foreign council's decisions uh you know imposing these horrific measures on humanity for you know this, this the crimes that they committed against the mantle when they were wiping out all these worlds uh, for what they didn't know at the time was to prune them away from the flood um they imprint these essences into their flesh so one of the humans that um is inside Chakas is the Lord of Admirals, Forthenko, who was sort of, you know, the military leader of ancient humanity during the wars and the personal nemesis of the didact. So we learn a bit more about uh, about him and what was going on and his perspective about things as uh, as he sort of gradually starts to try to take control of Chakas and, uh, and everything Shit. there. Yeah, so really interesting story that kind of goes down there. It's very... It's just very weird, very different from what you'd expect from any Halo story. And um, one of the key debates that comes up is about humanity's origins. Um, another character who appears when Riser comes back into the story is he carries the essence of uh, Iprin Iprakushma, and she was the sort of morale and scientist sort of leader for humanity. And she was also uh, opposed to, to Forthenko. And the big debate about them is whether humanity originated from Earth or not, whether they are from somewhere else. And this ties in a lot more to the whole exploration of uh, humanity's origins and their relationship to the Forerunners that was in the original trilogy. Because Eprin says, no, there's no way. We have determined uh, that Earth is our homeworld, that, that this is, we hold this to be true. But Forthenko says, mm, I'm not too sure about that because I've been <laughs> to all these other places in the galaxy and I have found weird ruins that look very human. And right. I've seen that the didact has also been visiting these places, asking the same questions. And in um, Halo Legends, the babysitter, we see some mysterious ruins that, you know, people at the time interpreted to be Forerunner, but they looked odd they look very you know sort of um they had influences of like asian uh, architecture and greco-roman stuff in there but also forerunner so it was this weird kind of mixing pot of designs which people initially put down to oh it's just artistic license <laughs> but you uh get into the uh commentary from frank o'connor and some of the other sort of stories they've been telling on the side and what frank says is no this is deliberate this is setting up the next kind of big mystery around, you know, ancient humanity and the forerunners and everything. And in Halo Evolutions, the anthology novel, there is a story in there called From the Office of uh, Arthur William Iqbal or William Arthur Iqbal, I can never remember his name, um, where he talks about these ruins and he says, well, it's really weird, isn't it? Because there, there's some human in there, there's some forerunner in there, what is going on? And what sort of the kind of conclusion that 
Primordium paints here is that there may have been a time where humans and forerunners were the same species, not separate as you know we as we know them now. But yeah. many, many millions of years ago, the precursors might have initially conceived hum humans and forerunners as the same species, and then they diverged in their evolution separately on different worlds. Because the thing about humanity uh, that we learn about here is that the domain has suppressed all information about them to the forerunners. And humanity has gone through a number of dark ages in their history where all records have been lost, including Earth as their homeworld. They didn't know. They had to rediscover that. So, you know, as I describe this, you must be surely thinking, God, there's like millions of years of stories to tell in these kind of, in this weird time period at some yeah. point. Um, so that is kind of one of the core, like, concerns that kind of comes up is like, well, okay, what what's this all mean? Mm-hmm. And this happens, of course, amidst a lot of walking and roaming and hiking and wayfaring across Installation 07. I think that's one of the main complaints people have about this book is, God, there's just, it's like Lord of the Rings. There's so much bloody walk. <laughs> people people compare it to Lord of the Rings. I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> but you know what? It is damn interesting walking as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's various sort of encounters that kind of happen. There's this bit where uh, Chakas and Gamalpar, Gamalpar is the um, sort of grandfather of Venevra. He's sort of the, he's the old man who they're, they're sort of mentor. And they accidentally walk into a, a grave mine's lair. Uh, oh, shit. And, yeah. And you can imagine how absolutely terrifying that must have been. So they're just like, we're going to walk the other way now and just sort of <laughs> get out of here. Yeah. Um, they encounter these um, these weird forerunners sort of monitors called uh, well they don't know that they're monitors at first but uh, Gene Mender Folder of Fortune is one of them who uh, is this life worker guide and uh, she sort of explains what's been going on with the forerunners on the ring there's been some civil war between them here with um, the orders that Faber the master build has been giving them and all these sort of unsanctioned experiments, all these horrific things going on, and the forerunners who have been like being infected by the flood there. It's just this whole mess of chaos on, on the ring where the worst possible like things that could happen to you in this setting are happening mm -hmm. to everybody. And, uh, you know, Chakas and Venevra and uh, Gamalpar are just trying, to, just trying to survive on this horrific environment. Eventually, of course, Gamalpar passes away, unfortunately. He... Uh, he he dies relatively peacefully, and his final words to Chakas are revealing Venevra's real name, because she is using the name of her mother. Uh, in human culture, they have like secret names and stuff like that. Yeah. And as I was saying earlier about you know the the hints around Cortana, we never actually get told what Venevra's real name is, but I suspect that that's what Greg Bear was really kind of gunning for is that her her name is like Cortana. Um, Ooh. which is why if we get juicy, uh, if we ever get another Cortana in the story, like we might in Halo Infinite, it'd be really cool if like that's her name just for that sort of like connection. Yeah. Um, of course, eventually, um, Chakas gets brought to the Palace of Pain himself as his, uh, as the, uh, Lord of Admirals is really sort of like 
growing in his mind. Venevra, her gayash is kind of getting worse as these like life worker towers are really pulling her and these other humans too to the palace to be taken. And that's where we sort of learn what's really been going on is that the ring, Installation 07, sustained heavy damage from uh, the battle at the capital in Halo Krypton. And because it's been taken over by hostile forces, Mendicant Bias and the Timeless One, the Primordial, um, one of its fail-safes has activated where the ring is on a suicidal collision with a planetoid. So it's just going to get blown up. You may remember in like the terminals for Halo 1 where Guilty Spark says, you know, oh, there are all these like long plans and protocols for when our rings are turned against us. This is one of them. If it gets taken over by a hostile force, it's going to crash itself into a planet and kill everything on it. Bad day. Uh, blow itself up. Yes, yeah, so it's a bad day for everyone. It's a bad day for the humans on there. It's a bad day for the flood on there because they obviously don't want to die. It's a bad day for Mendicant Bias and the Timeless Ones. So they're like, guys, we need to work together on this. So what Mendicant Bias does is uh, he's been taking all these humans in and he's been merging them with the flood to try and interface with the Forerunner controls because they've infected Forerunners as well on the ring. So if by, you know, recombining them, um, they can sort of interface with the cartographer and all these other sort of systems to maneuver the ring in such a way that the planet will pass through it rather than crashing onto the planet. So it will go like through the middle. But of course... That's dangerous as well because of the gravitational forces which are going to, you know, cause a real strain on the ring. And so when this happens, that's why the ring gets shed down to a much smaller size in the end. Is because uh, it's been so heavily damaged that it will literally fall apart if it's not sort of reconfigured. Um, but I'm getting ahead of myself there. <laughs> so what happens is um, the Lord of Admirals is extracted from Chakas's mind Um through a really like horrific process and Chakas is sort of merged with the flood he becomes one of these people who uh, has the unfortunate job of um, being recruited to try and steer the ring and um, what Mendicant Bias's plan is is to have all these essences of the ancient humans brought back so that they can take the war to the forerunners he's similar to the created he's created this army of kind of essences of AI sort of style humans to rise up against the forerunners and take their revenge for the human forerunner war uh, so that they're helping out the flood and causing all this misery in the galaxy but uh, of course as these plans are going ahead the isodidact uh, bornsteller shows up yeah uh, and that pattern of the didact has really been growing in his mind so uh, we sort of get a parallel scene between what happens in krypton where he speaks to mendicant bias uh, and that happens here where yeah, he says that he knows Mendicant Bias's original sort of true identity, and he is one of his makers. Um, and again, that's another thing, another little mystery that's kind of left hanging. But of course, the implication is that Mendicant Bias was built out of all these human essences as well, because it's noted that he takes a particular sort of ironic satisfaction in, you know, having humans kind of rise up again and take the fight to the forerunners again. Um so he deactivates Mendicant Bias and he confronts uh, the Timeless One. But before that, he meets up again with Chakas, his old mate from Krypton. And he's like, oh, this is this is bad. If you just imagine this like pile of flood goop, <laughs> which is vaguely recognizable as your friend. And yeah. he, what he does is he uses the composer 
on Chakas. He extracts his mind from his physical body and puts it into, uh, you know, a mechanical into mechanical storage. What will eventually happen, of course, is that's how he will go on to become three four three guilty spark. He was saved Man. by his friend by the didact, um, and together they go and interrogate the, uh, the the primordial, and they're like, "Dude, what was this all about? Like, why are you doing this?" Yeah. And what the the primordial reveals is that it was trying to study the flood around the whole topic of immunity because of what happened with humanity back in, you know, the, the foreign with the, their wars with the flood, where, you know, it seemed like they had discovered a cure and they had sent all their population, you know, to, to go fight the flood and they'd pushed them back outside the galaxy. But what it has found, the answer it has discovered is that this was all part of a larger plan. The flood can choose to infect or not to infect. And so what it had done is that it had chosen not to infect humanity to make it appear that they had found a cure for the flood as an elaborate trolling method to give the forerunners hope that they could win this fight only to discover at the end that there was no cure at all. Damn. <laughs> yeah. That's messed up. Because it's not just enough to defeat the forerunners. They have to make them suffer. They have to make them go through the most excruciating defeat possible to bring their civilization, not just to an end, but to its knees. And that it, the, what unfolds there is just absolutely insane because we'll go to learn a bit more about why that is, why they're so, you know, angry at the forerunners in Silentium. We'll learn much more about that. Um, and what it reveals there is that humans will be tested for the mantle next, that the forerunners were never deemed to be worthy. They had stolen the mantle for themselves, which is why they are unworthy rulers. And that is why they must be extinguished. And that is why they preserved humanity. They, the flood favored humanity because what's coming for humanity next in a hundred thousand years, which is coincidentally, you know, around the time of the games taking place, is that the Flood are going to test humans for the mantle. And the Didact, in a fit of rage, executes the uh, the Primordial by using its stasis chamber to age it by billions of years in the space of seconds, and it crumbles into dust. But the unfortunate reality of this is that this was just another part of the Primordial's plan, because what effectively this does is, while it kills the physical representation of it, this consciousness goes on to live in the flood hive mind and goes on to become the grave mind that we will encounter, of course, in, oh in the games. <laughs> and so it's a very low moment for everyone because Chakas has lost his body and uh, he's now stuck as a machine. The didact has realized that they are absolutely fucked. <laughs> <laughs> and civilization is coming, is coming to an end. And that's kind of the note that Primordium sort of ends on in that part of the story, um, except, of course, for the present-day storyline, where Chakas reveals that uh, all this time he has been searching for the librarian. And while it's believed that she died on Earth when the halos were fired, he thinks that he's found a different answer, 
and that she's still out there. And after all this time, he thinks he's found where she is. So what he does is he puts the crew to sleep uh, of the ship after they try to kind of eject him from the ship. And he takes over the ship and he's like, I finally know where to find her. And that's where the book ends. Oh, that's some good ass sizzle in that. (laughs) And we didn't get the third one until after Halo 4. Yeah, so originally Silentium was meant to come out in December of 2012. So that would have been a month after Halo 4. But there was a slight delay as some sort of rewrites were going on. As is natural with these sort of things, you know, they get pushed around as um, they really wanted to ensure that all the details kind of aligned with the game, with the game story. And Mm -hmm. as, you know, things go in the publishing world, different sort of release windows are targeted so it was pushed to march uh, so we had a good four months or so of like oh god how's this story gonna end <laughs> because of course we had the didact show up in halo 4 right. and at the time the belief was that he had been killed by the master builder in in halo Cryptum when he's captured we didn't know for certain but that's what the librarian says is that oh i'm pretty sure he's dead so you know you're my new husband now <laughs> wow. which this and this is one of the things that confuse people so so much i guess this is a this is one i'll say is a fair confusion is that yeah the didact we face in halo 4 is the ur didact and the yes. one from this novel we just primordium we just went through is the iso didact yes so and the whole imprinting and 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 you know having your mutation imprinted upon you and becoming the same like I, it, that's a that's something I'll give people slack on and it's a little out there for you know before we get into the last one uh, what was that like for you guys when it gets to the point where he gets to the timeless one like he's having that confrontational like discussion was it like I mean Brian's described that to me before and it's just like the theater of the mind that that does for me mm-hmm. is just like. Almost like you described it earlier as almost like this Lovecraftian type thing. It sounds both horrifying and like so stimulating. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yes. It's the the promise of these kind of answers. But with these answers, you are getting like madness induced within you for their their truth. Because that's the thing about the timeless one is that he destroys these people by telling them the truth, not lying. I always love that in a villain is that, you know, where, when something is revealed that uh, that is actually true, not just something to manipulate these characters. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I uh, for me, I, I it's, it's kind of it's kind of embarrassing to think that because at the time of this would have been so 2012, you know, I would have been about 20. But I still kind of had this, even though I was fully aware of 343 taking over Halo, fully aware of Bungie being done like that. None of you know, I'm I'm in the thick of it. Some part of me, like, there was so much depth to all this history and background of the Precursor, uh, the Forerunners, the, the Floods, Origin stuff. There was a part of me that was kind of like, I was wondering how much, like, it, I guess the simplest way I'll say it is I'm like, man, did Bungie have this in planned all along? You know, <laughs> like, because it was so well, I mean, obviously you have Greg Bear doing this. It was There was some part of me that was just like, this is so detailed and so almost feels well orchestrated that I'm mm. like, Okay, is this what Bungie had in the Halo Bible since two thousand one? Yeah, which is it's it's that's not the case at all. Obviously, as uh, is come to learn later, but um, wow, did they? Uh, this was just, I mean, it was mind blowing. This stuff. Yeah, I absolutely. mean, it, it, it sounds like it's, it's, it's enri- people involved in this. It story. enriched the universe. <laughs> 
double over at least right off the bat we were getting these stories kind of unfold in january each year so january 2011 we had krypton january 2012 we had uh, primordium and the thing about that is obviously that's the same year that halo 4 came out and yet nobody not a single person like ever thought that the composer would be what would be you know going up against in in halo 4 that that would be the sort of core plot device because it doesn't feel like greg bear is ticking off a checklist to say oh yeah and the composer that was in, in halo 4 think about mm-hmm. that uh it just feels so naturally integrated into that story and it tells it so well the entire that, trilogy uh, feels naturally told yeah really absolutely um well alex do you want to take it now uh, before i say that too now we were going to cover like some kilo five stuff in this but not only i'm speaking for others here not only is it not as interesting but it's like i said it's not alex's favorite thing um with alex taking us step by step through this so beautifully um (laughs) and we're gonna have him go through silentium now and we're kind of on our we've kind of set up 90 minute schedules for this stuff we kind of got roughly half hour ish left do we want to Alex, I'm completely this up to you. Is this is how much time do you want to spend on the Kilo Five trilogy on either this week or next week? But how much time do you want to spend on that? Let's go for next week. Let's let's get me in higher spirits to talk about uh, talk about that. <laughs> okay, okay. So we will uh, we'll brief. We'll try to kind of wedge that into the next episode. Mm-hmm. And I I know I think I, I think it's fair to say you'll have less to say about that. Maybe yeah, maybe I, I probably won't go through in as much detail um, through the the plots and everything. But I'll, I'll go through the the general sort of picture. Sure. Okay, well, take us through Silentium. We're yeah, ready. I gotta hear this. Halo Silentium. God, this is still my absolute favorite Halo book. And not just that, but just a genuinely excellent piece of science fiction literature. Um, This, of course, came out a couple of months after Halo 4. We were all asking, what is this story going to be? We knew, you know, similar to Revenge of the Sith, where Darth Vader's getting in the suit, you know, Anakin's getting in that suit. We knew that this was going to end with the Halo rings firing or life in the galaxy being silenced and that story coming to, you know, its natural end. And that of course is the great tragedy at the, at the heart of the Halo universe. You know, we're effectively living in a post-apocalyptic setting and we don't know it, but we're gradually becoming more and more aware of it because what this story is really about is the immense sacrifices that the foreigners make to, to get their answers and to get, a future for the galaxy after the rings have fired because when we pick up at the start the librarian and her life workers are on earth cataloging these humans um to go and take them to safety on um one of the halo rings which we'll later see um and you know the the conservation measure is what's sort of like they've fully committed to which is uh cataloging cataloging as many species in the galaxy as they can to recede them from the Ark. Mentioned in the Halo 3 terminals, correct? Yes, definitely. That was uh, that was all set up there. So we're following up on all that. Um, and what happens is that the flood have sort of spiraled to this point where their very presence uh, in a system is affecting space-time. They're not just infecting like live beings and that space itself, like the the physical components of the universe are being twisted and distorted by their presence. Because what we're seeing now is whole systems that have fallen to the flood. Planet sized grave mines uh, have come into being called key mines and everything. And it's just everything that the, the, the war is lost. There There is no coming back from this. Um, 
So the didact and librarian at Earth are separated once again. The didact has to go off to command his forces, and the librarian has to, you know, sort of um, really come to terms with this uh, with this inevitable ending. And what we see from her side of the story is this voyage she went on outside the galaxy some thousands of years ago, while the didact, her original husband, was um, was in the cryptum, uh, was you know was having his nap. Um, she uh, was really playing the political game to stay relevant, keep her rate sort of, you know, politically active, because the builders were taking all the power. The master builder and his corrupt faction, they were, you know, promising the council all these riches and glory with the halo rings and everything, all these amazing construction projects, which was going to consolidate their power. And everyone else was getting phased out. All their sort of culture and traditions and that were being suppressed. And there's a whole lot of like interesting stuff around that, which we learn more about uh, through the eyes of other characters. Uh, so what the librarian does is, okay, well, we're going to do a voyage to um, a spiral galaxy outside of our own. And right there is where we're going to find the origins of the flood. So we're going to build a ship and the ship takes like, t- takes like tens of years to build. Um, and we're going to get a crew of about of seven forerunners, and we go out. And we're going to, you know, find our answers. So that sort of unfolds, and then we cut back and forth between her and the didact, the original didact, who it turns out has not been executed by the master builder. He has been put in an even worse situation. So what's happened here is that he awakens on this derelict ship, which the master builder has. Um, put on a flight uh, plan and of course to what's called a burn which is a solar system that has completely fallen to the flood and so this is this is very much a fate worse than death this is what he's been doing to his political enemies is stuffing them on these ships putting them to stasis and then sending them off to the flood uh, the didact awakens with another warrior servant called sharp by striking and uh, a builder, a lady called uh, Maker of Moons. She was the one who pointed out all the flaws in the original Halo rings and was like, we need to improve these designs. We need to make sure that they fire like omnidirectionally rather than in this cone-shaped nonsense. And the master builder was like, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. Thanks for that. Now off to flood space you go. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Nobody's going to challenge my influence. This was my idea. Um, so that's uh, that's all going on. And there's also a catalog unit, and this is this is a big thing in Silentium as we learn about this sort of sect of forerunners, which um, are primarily built up of like convicts who have been biologically converted into these juridical machines. They they run the sort of legal side of the forerunner society, where they record events and they they bear witness to uh to everything that's going on and they're right now going trying to get the testimony of like the library and the didact the master builder and all that to uh you know to put together this complete legal picture of what's been going on for the last sort of few thousand years uh so they're sort of our viewpoint characters into uh learning about all that um so one of these units is uh, aboard the ship with the didact as well 
And uh, they have this whole kind of argument about like, oh, well, you know, warrior servants were in the wrong or the builders were in the wrong. Uh, and eventually they figure out their predicament that like, oh, the uh, the flood is sort of coming after us. Um, and what happens there is that um, the Didact helps Sharp and make a sort of escape in their escape pods. And he never sees them again. Um, but Maker leaves behind her armor for him. And it's sort of implied, we don't know for certain, but it, it might be the armor that we see in Halo 4 it was hers. Um Oh wow! That she left behind for him because he—he's still kind of his light-hearted self at this point because he has these lines where uh, he's like, "Oh, it's it's tough to survive uh, a crashing ship in your underwear <laughs> as they're heading towards the flood." <laughs> there, there's still, as with Kryptom, you know, there's a lot of levity uh, and sort of light-heartedness at this point to offset the tone of just how dour and horrible the situation is. Like there, there's this bit where you know, make her sort of. She tells him everything that's been going on and all these like strategies that the foreigners have been coming up with. And he just breaks down laughing, just like, hysterically laughing about it all, just how stupid they've been. So, <laughs> and, so and, stupid. Yeah, because the thing in foreigner society is like, you don't laugh, you don't smile, you don't show emotion. That's why they hide their faces behind their, their masks and everything is because they're very, you know, very regal, very dignified. So to, to smile, they've actually like augmented that ability out of themselves almost um with only the exception of like the librarian who has modeled herself more on humanity and she still retains that ability and the didact you know it's this huge kind of moment <laughs> where where he just like just starts hysterically laughing at everything that's been going on and everyone else is just kind of like what's he doing is he mad <laughs> um yes <laughs> so yeah grave mind catches up with them and uh, the catalog unit chooses to stay with the didact. They have this whole sort of friendship, which kind of unfolds where he learns about what this catalog unit did um, when, during his like former life and how he sort of came to be. And the grave mind, gosh, the, the in, he doesn't appear much in this book, but when he does, it's so impactful because as he greets the didact, he doesn't speak. He vibrates certain like areas of the didact's brain to make it appear like he's speaking. And just one of his few lines in it is, Didact, do you have a moment? Just a moment. That's all it will take. And then we cut off from that chapter perspective and we don't see the Didact for a long point after that. Making me feel like I'm in Lovecraftian right now. Yeah. Right? I'm right? I'm there. Continue. Um, yeah, so we follow up with the librarian at this point and she is um, off to a place called Path Kithona outside the galaxy. Um and she's got her little crew of uh, other forerunners, and they're like, okay, let's uh, survey this place and let's see what we can find. And they're scanning and they're scanning and they're trying to figure out, like, you know, what what the hell is here? What answers are we, uh, are we going to find? And what they come across is this huge ghost fleet of just empty ships hanging around in this space. And they've been abandoned for, like, millions of years and they're like what the hell is this as huge kind of like precursor kind of prison structure around it and they're like wow something happened here like this is where we apparently like chased our chased our makers to uh, in our pursuit of them and they find this planet which has got signs of life on it and they find that these are forerunners these are devolved 
ancient forerunners that uh, what the hell are they doing here and uh, the librarian is the only one who's sort of like not uh, not scared about you know what's sort of going on she goes out she meets them uh, she gets bitten by one of them which causes some biological exchange where they can sort of understand each other uh, she meets this uh, this old uh, ancient forerunner lady and she takes her to this place um, where they've preserved all this history in an organic form of the domain. She basically has like an acid trip to learn about <laughs> of what's, what's happened. It's very sort of like Far Cry 3, you know? Yeah. Um, and they learn that um, this is where the Forerunners chased the Precursors to wipe them all out, to commit total extermination against their creators. Because it was decreed, obviously, as we learned in Primordium, that the Forerunners were not worthy of the mantle. Humanity was going to be tested. Uh, and what the Forerunners did is they rose up against the Precursors and started wiping them out. But um, we don't know for sure whether um, the Precursors were, were planning to wipe out the Forerunners because they weren't worthy, or if they were just going to leave them alone. All we know is, is that the Forerunners fired the first shot. They fired that first bullet. Correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Alex, but doesn't it say something along the lines of, like, the precursors themselves, like, didn't know how to handle violence? So they, yeah, they were so awed by the capacity that their creations had for destruction that they didn't do anything about it. They just let it happen. They, they were like, we want to experience this because we've not felt this before. You know, we've not had our creations kind of rise up against us like this. And in their own sort of twisted, you know, alien minds, this was something, this was a sensation to be experienced. (laughs) And what that does, the scale of the, you know, that violence is what kind of corrupts them sort of to the core. Because as they're being wiped out, this is the place where they fled to Pathkathona. And they sought these new sort of survival strategies. One such strategy was the creation of the timeless one, the primordial as we came to know it, which is now the grave mind. Um, it was this sort of augmented being this uh, of a precursor that was uh, made to survive deep time, it was meant to like be immortal, live for a very long time, so that it could enact some of their plans. Uh, and another one of those plans was the precursors kind of ground themselves up into this like into this powder, which they placed on these ancient starships which is what ancient humanity came upon. And they saw all this and they thought, okay, let's play around with it. Let's see what it does. Let's see what this powder does. So this is what takes place over the passage of 10 million years, that this powder has become defective. It has been, you know, it's been corrupted and everything. And uh, so the humans start putting it on their dogs. They're not actually dogs. They're called the Feru, but it's sort of their equivalent of dogs at the time. Oh, okay. And this is made fun of quite a bit in in the Halo lore because it it sounds ridiculous, but of course, in the actual telling of it, it's really good. Um, yeah. And at first, it's like, oh yeah, these uh, you know these sort of stimulants, this powder is making them more docile. It's you know it's a really good sort of uh, for for our pets. Let's keep using it. And uh, eventually it makes the Feru sterile and they start exhibiting these weird growths. And because they've been living with humans and San Shayum, they sort of get affected by it. And these uh, cannibal cults start emerging where humans are eating 
the uh, the fleshy growths on the feru and the sanshayuma like eating it as well and it's very sort of like zombie apocalypse vibe yeah. where they all start eating each other and they all start trying to like you know set up these horrific kind of um ways of like tricking people into uh, getting infected and everything so that's all very interesting <laughs> and that is the earliest stage of the flood it was it was basically dawn of the dead um and of course what we've seen now is the reveal that these are the precursors these are our makers this is what they've become and they chose to become this they saw all the the violence and the hatred and uh, and everything that they were given by the foreigners and they found it good they liked it so that's what they became as they became this twisted mirror of of like what they were so the domain you know the this repository of galactic information of life and its celebration of you know our interaction with the cosmos that's what the flood are but the evil version they are the twisted mirror of like um misery and um everything that the precursors now want to inflict on all living beings for the pain that they went through as they were you know genocided by the forerunners as so, a lot to i am a monument to all your sins i am a monument that it's all summed up in that line just that one line and that is what the librarian discovers and she goes back to you know forerunner space like God, we screwed up. Because <laughs> <laughs> so, here's the thing. The domain, we learn, is its own kind of sentient entity. And for millions and millions of years, it has been trying to warn the forerunners that, about what they did. trying Because this was all suppressed by their ancestors. You know, like, no, the, the story is, is that the precursors left us in charge of the galaxy that's how it happened anybody who says different is gonna get you know executed uh and there are just a few fragments left of the truth that the librarian sort of uncovers including this one um for a being called boundless who was part of like this defunct rate this defunct cast of society which got completely shut down because she got a bit too close to the truth and the domain has been nudging her findings to you know the foreigners because the thing about the domain is it has a set of rules and it can only relate information which is already known um so that's like the one data point it has on the truth of what the foreigners did and it's been pushing this to the surface and the foreigner government has been pushing back to ensure that the truth kind of never gets out but the domain violates its own rules on occasion and we see that happen a few times in the foreigner saga because it speaks in krypton directly to bornsteller with everyone who's ever like been in the domain uh, and it tells him you know preserve is the one word it tells him and that's kind of what the foreigners do with the conservation measure it's like you guys are fucked there, there's no <laughs> coming back from this the best you can do is save everyone else you know what in whatever way you can that's kind of like the the message it essentially imparts which is what born Stella and the librarian are committed to um so we pick up again with the didact and he's come back miraculously he's been sent he, he's been um imprisoned tortured by the grave mind and he's had uh, you know his influence kind of imparted within him 
uh, and he's been sent back to the Forerunner Ecumen, or what remains of it at least. And the the appearance of it is like, oh, this legendary hero that we you know we sort of shunned before he's returned to us and he's got all these new ideas about how to defeat the flood which of course is where we bring in the composer and his whole plan with humans to create the promethean knights um because he doesn't want to fire the halo rings that's what he's always been committed to to fire the rings is an unthinkable crime and it's the one thing that he you know he will never do never and the, the fact that they're even considering this is how they've lost their way and so this is the cause he's committed to. So we sort of see his plan unfold as he um, meets with um, the librarian again and his double. And they have their big argument of like, you know, this is how we got to do things. You know, you're a poor copy of the didact if you believe that firing the halos is right. Because, of course, the isodidact, born stellar, this is what he believes. You know, this is what we got to do. Our time time of the forerunners has ended it's time for you know humanity to to pick up the pieces and to do things right where we got things so horribly wrong but the didact you know he believes in forerunner supremacy um he he believes that only the forerunners are worthy of holding the mantle um so he's going to do anything sacrifice anything it takes to ensure that they don't fire the rings so that their sort of status quo is maintained uh, and this is the point where the precursor artifact on their planet activates and they learn that these star roads, these immortal kind of like um, constructs of the precursors, uh, these are what have become the real threat now. Not just the flood, but these things which can smash through planets and uh, move stars across the galaxy. These are what's coming for them. And they're coming from like outside of the galaxy as well. Uh, so it's like everything is like digging in like, on the forerunners space and time itself is trying to like shun the forerunners from from existence because their time has come to an end and it's all this horrific like cosmic stuff which they're up against and what sort of follows on from there is the last remnants of forerunner sort of government mounting their resistance at the greater arc where they've aimed a halo ring at um at uh, at the spiral galaxy that the librarian visited, which is where all these star roads are coming from. Um, and this is Omega Halo, where there is the population of humans that was uh, preserved for by the librarian. And as we see in Halo Force Terminals, this is where the didact shows up with the composer, and he's like, hey, you guys, you're going to become my Promethean Knights. How'd you feel about that? Doesn't really matter, because you've already been converted. Um so that's what we see kind of happen there and the librarian witnesses this and she just goes mad like we see her in in the games you know she's very dignified very calm very regal very sure of herself and in this moment she loses control like catalog is noting like oh my god even even this like you know this being which has been made just to record stuff that's going that's happening is like Oh, she's mad. She is so mad. <laughs> so that, of course, leads her to uh, to go to Requiem and uh, imprison the Didact in his cryptum. Uh, and at this point, we sort of um, we see um, the Master Builder who's come back. You know, he's uh, he's on the Ark as well, on the Greater Ark with uh, the rest of the people there, and he he makes 
a surprisingly noble sacrifice. He could escape. He could literally... He's got a personal portal which would take him to safety. But uh, after everything he's done and all these terrible things that he's committed, he says, no, this is um, this is the end for me. If there's one good thing left that I can do, it's going to be going down with my halo ring uh, and my arc uh, to, to stop the, the star roads coming in, to buy you some time. So what he does is he gives the isodidact his personal access to his portal. And he says, you got to go to the Ark, the other Ark, and you got to fire the rings. And, you know, the rest of us are going to die here just to buy you time. And this is where, you know, the final sort of pieces come into place. The Born Stella has to leave. But at the same time, the Star Roads have reached the Greater Ark. And they're like smashing into it and they're tearing stuff apart. And they fire the ring. Uh, and Born Stella, the Isodidact, gets sort of like thrown adrift which is where his old friend Chakus comes back. He has been dispatched by the librarian to make sure that, you know, he reaches the Ark. So he rescues uh, Bornstella, and this is where, you know, they, they go to the Ark together and they have their conversation, you know. Last time you asked me if it were my choice, would I do it? And that's the question that he asks, you know, when they get to the Ark is, you know, if you were in my position, would you fire the rings? It's, it's that impossible question to answer because it's like killing everything in the galaxy to save it. Now, did I somehow miss it, Alex? But did you? I, I don't. You didn't touch on the part where Medican Bias talks for like decades with the like the Grave Mind, right? Yeah. So that's sort of like what's been kind of going on in the background, preceding the events of this whole story uh, before Halo Krypton. So Mendicant has already been turned against the Forerunners um, during his sort of long study of um, of the Timeless One. He was infected. It's kind of difficult to say. He was either infected with the Logic Plague or willingly sort of gave himself to the cause. And it's not entirely clear like where one starts and the other ends because the Logic Plague is just basically an argument that the Flood makes, which is a kind of truth that these AIs eventually come to accept. Um, so yeah, that's basically what's happened preceding all these events. Mendicant is... Uh, he, he's, he's been reconstructed now by the, by the Grave Mind, and he's leading um, you know, all the foreigner attacks. And this is where we sort of come to, in the end of the book, where Mendigan has massed the Flood fleet up against offensive bias, yeah, you know his uh, his essential twin kind of contender AI, uh, and this is what they're sort of doing is like offensive bias is also trying to buy Born Stellar time so that he can go to the Ark and fire the rings. The mendicant is trying to you know stop that from happening. Um, so eventually, of course, the rings are fired. Born Stellar asks God, just forgive us for this, <laughs> please. Right. This is what we have to do. This is. It's unthinkable. It's the worst possible thing. Because you got to remember, it's like, Bornsteller was barely more than 12 years old when we meet him in Krypton. He is not old at all. And this is the, the duty he's been saddled with because the didact, the original didact, this isn't his course of action. Um, 
And that's sort of the note kind of the book ends on is they fire the rings, everyone dies, the didact is imprisoned, and Guilty Spark starts losing his mind because um, the didact uh, sends him off to Installation 04. And what this means is, uh, this goes back to something that was foreshadowed in Halo 3, where, you know, when you go to the cartographer on the Ark, and uh, Spark is like, oh, I always assumed the Ark would be part of a shield installation. And the chief says, oh, you know, that's a first that you were mistaken about this. And Spark says, oh, not at all. You see, my makers uh, wisely limited my knowledge about all other strategic facilities to compartmentalize my knowledge if I was ever captured by the Flood. So I only know really about my installation, Installation 04. What happens here is that uh, obviously we know that Spark is based on Chakus, on this individual who has been to multiple Halo rings, has been to the Ark. Yeah. But when he goes to his ring, this mechanical kind of process starts working its way through his mind, which suppresses all his memories of who he was. And this is where, you know, his 100,000 years of isolation really does, uh, takes its toll on him because he sort of forgets all these things, which is why, you know, it explains kind of his, some of his dialogue in the original trilogy, where it's like, these things are familiar to him. When he speaks to the chief uh, in Halo 1, he says, last time you asked me, it's because he's remembering being in this same situation as he was in with the didact, when, when in the same, yeah. sort of in the same position. So it's a very satisfying answer to that question of like, what the hell was that all about? Yeah. Yeah, and there, there's a wellspring of dialogue in the library that just ties so well to all this as well. Yeah, you and while that is about... where Silentium ends, that's not the end of the Foreigner Saga story, because you see, there is an epilogue called Halo Rebirth. Uh, and the way you access this <laughs> is at the start of each chapter in Silentium, there is a Forerunner code which you would input on a terminal on Halo Waypoint, and you would get this audio reading uh, about 45 minutes long, from Greg Bear, which uh, is a story that was written by Chloe Bear, his daughter. Uh, she was very much involved in sort of crafting this story alongside him. It was her idea to make uh, Guilty Spark the uh, human sidekick of the of Bornsteller. Um, and she wrote this incredible story where um, we pick up with Riser as he's brought to the Ark and Venevra from Halo Primordium, and they're sort of... Um, they're there with the Forerunner survivors and with every, everyone else who's been brought there after the rings have been fired. And they meet um, Bornsteller and they meet uh, Chanter Green, who is the new life worker. She's the one who the, the librarian sort of gives as her successor. Um, and it's basically the start of the new galaxy. What they have is, you know, they've, they've all lost everything. So they have this great feast at the end of uh, to commemorate the passing of the old galaxy humans and forerunners together as brothers <laughs> and they get forerunners drunk and they're like dancing together it's very tolkien <laughs> it's very tolkien indeed wow. uh, and it's just this really beautiful conclusion which ends with them going back to earth together and the didact saying you know the galaxy is your responsibility now you know i i pray that uh, we will meet again. Our children and your children will, will once again come together and will be the brothers that we were always meant to be. And that's kind of the uh, the note that that story ends. And it's just Damn. this beautiful resolution on, on all that. I, I missed out a bit. That's actually. so damn good. Wow. I missed out one little bit. Yeah, go ahead. And it's kind of the most important bit because when the librarian is on Earth, this is at the end of Silentium, 
uh, and she's in her garden, you know, she's uh, building the portal. She's got her ship, which is being deconstructed into what will take humanity to the Ark. And she's reflecting on like, oh, this is humanity's birthright. You know, this is uh, this is the how they're going to inherit the mantle. They must get to the Ark. Um, and then she sees that uh, the Lord of Admirals, Forthenko, is uh, is there with her, is down on the planet. She's like, huh, the fuck is this all about? <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, What's happened is that the grave mind, for these final moments, has sent down the apparition, like the essence of Forthenko and of the of the ancient humans on Earth, to deliver a message to the librarian. Just one final message, and this is the last piece clicking into place um, for the the flood's final victory, where he reveals that the domain. The, the core of everything Forerunner, you know, which they built their entire society around, which the librarian is relying on to heal the Didact's mind from the Grave Mind's influence. Yeah, that's based on neural physics. Uh, that's going to be destroyed by the Halos. So all of their history, everything that's happened over millions and millions of years, all that recorded knowledge is going to be lost when the halo rings fire and the didact will spend the next hundred thousand years trapped in his own madness and he is going to awaken worse than ever and that of course is what puts the final piece in place for halo 4 and the librarian's like oh god oh this is bad so she sends a message to the ark she's like don't fire the halo rings we're, gonna, we're making a huge mistake after all this time, you know, being committed to it. We, we can't do this. And the uh, Forthenko reveals, sorry, librarian, you know, the halo rings have already been fired. Their effects just haven't reached Earth at this time. And she dies with the weight of this immense failure kind of on her shoulders. Uh, and that's sort of how her story ends there until, you know, we see her again in Halo Renegades. And... Yeah, that's that story. Holy and, shit! And uh, the uh, wasn't the Shield Worlds were was the Erdidax idea as opposed yes. to the Halo Rings. Yes, those were his uh, his proposed solution to the flood. So he's kind of his solution that he didn't get to go through with. That's kind of well, obviously he's in the Cryptum, but that's his imprisonment on yeah. Requiem. You know, so. it's fantastic. Dude, I'm, stuff, I'm lost for words. To be honest, I'm like still processing. That's People the four in a saga. Are be like, please, please don't. The, the, tell me, give me the next book. Give me the next book. <laughs> now, look, there's so much that I missed out in all that because you know these are these are pretty long books and there's just so much detail. But that's just the high level picture of sort of their broad plot. Go figure, Josh. The one where we barely talk at all is the best episode. Yet. <laughs> Dude, this is the best one. This is yeah, super good. Far. This is the one that people are going to be... Now, I'm getting ahead of myself. But this one, people are going to be commenting like, whoa, I want more of that. Like, yeah, holy It's going to suck, Alex, when we just request you to do an episode of summarizing each individual event of every book ever, <laughs> uh, you know, on the podcast. Oh, my goodness. Dude, that is so much to take in. <laughs> yeah, That's yeah. it's a lot to have it's been a while since i read those books again recently i, I try to read read them every year like the lord of the rings trilogy yeah um but i haven't gotten around to it this year unfortunately yet god that's so well i'm depressing and fascinating <laughs> because of that story yeah. but it's beautifully depressing yes yeah, yeah. wow um so tragic I'm glad that we're not going to go into the kilo five trilogy because we're listening yes. on this high note right yes. now with this um <laughs> yeah absolutely but, 
Um, you know, guys, this has got episodes gone a little longer, and it's just been such it's just been straight fire quality, completely thanks to Alex. Wow. Um, this is something that, you know, even though, you know, I knew this stuff already, but hearing it again from Alex, it's just like I'm gonna wanna not only read these books again, but also just listen to this episode like, I again. Feel like I just got to listen to like an uh, like an uh, Haruspis article. This was fascinating. <laughs> yeah, so good, so good. I mean, I feel truly uh, blessed to be a part of this uh, episode. So, um, pat yourself on the back, Alex. Amazing. People are gonna love uh, this. Patting. I'm um, patting. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, when it's this. Uh, because we're in the holidays here, we kind of we record some stuff ahead of time. So, uh, you know, this episode will be going up probably this one particular probably around Christmas ish time. Um, and a lovely we'll have, happy we'll be, fireside story for for Christmas. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Super and relaxing I, too. Uh, provided things work out, we will be getting back with Alex again to kind of go into the Kilo Five stuff and move forward towards with, with more Halo Four retrospective uh, early January. Um, but, uh, thank you guys so much for tuning into this episode. Uh, we enjoyed it at least as much as, as you guys Freaking did. Loved it. <laughs> so good. Damn. So, uh, as always guys, uh, stay safe, happy holidays and keep it sacred.